be strengthened and Christ's body built up. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I heard the story recently of a pastor who went out of town uh, to speak at a conference and uh, was on a plane ride back home and furiously prepare, preparing for the next Sunday's sermon. So he had his notepad and a pen and he's sitting there in the plane and working on the next Sunday's sermon. And as he's doing so, the man sitting next to him continues to kind of look over and look over at him and trying to figure out what it is that this pastor is doing. And finally, the, the man seated next to the pastor, his curiosity gets the better of him. And he says to that pastor, yeah, I, I've been noticing you're working really hard, writing something down. I'm just really curious, what is it that you're working on? And the pastor introduced himself. He said he was a pastor and told him that he was working on his sermon for Sunday. And the man said, ah, religion. I don't like to get all caught up in the ins and outs of complexities of religion. I like to keep it simple. He said, uh, the golden rule, that's, that's, my, that's my religion. The pastor said, I see. Well, what do you do? And the man smiled and he said, well, I'm an astronomer. I teach at such and such a university. And the pastor said, ah, astronomy. I don't like to get all caught up in the ins and outs and complexities of astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's my astronomy. <laughs> we might be amused at a story like that because we know that astronomy is enormously complex and reducing it to a mere child song is ridiculous. But the pastor's point is well taken, isn't it? If the planets and stars are complex, how much more is the God who created them? And yet for, for far too many people, including many people who call themselves Christians, including perhaps some in this room, we approach God with little more than a twinkle, twinkle little star theology of worship. And in fact, we say, it matters that we worship God, not how we worship Him. And so we say things like, I like the preaching, but what really helps me is the worship. Or, I don't need the church to worship God. Or, worship is just between me and God. Or, I don't feel in a very worshipful mood right now. Or the only thing that matters in my worship is that I'm sincere. Comments like these reveal just how much we need the book of Malachi. So if you're not already there, grab your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 1. My dad used to joke growing up that he was the Italian prophet and called him Malachi. And uh, I rolled my eyes then as you're rolling your eyes now, and that's great because it's Malachi. And it's written about 460 BC. The temple has been rebuilt and worship has resumed. Ezra has come and gone. Nehemiah has helped rebuild the walls. God's people have kind of settled in to something like a, a new normal living in Judah amidst a Persian captivity. And worship has resumed in the temple. And yet God has a bone to pick with his people. Like, like the man on the plain, the people in Judah were effectively saying, it matters that we worship God, not how we worship him. And so Malachi comes along as a prophet, almost functioning like an attorney, bringing these arguments against God's people to expose their faulty, failed, foolish worship. 
And in this little book, we see that God cares deeply how we worship him. I want you to notice in our passage, in our book, this book this morning, four characteristics of right worship. Four characteristics of right worship. And before we begin, let me just say, this is by no means an exhaustive list. You, you cannot say everything that needs to be said about how rightly to worship God from one book of the Bible. We need the whole story of God's word to be able to do that well. But, but it is four important things from the book of Malachi. And by the way, we're really just scratching the surface of this little book. As I've already mentioned, Malachi deals with some pretty tough stuff that we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, we could uh, turn every single one of these points into a sermon of its own, but I won't do that. I'll just keep you here until I'm done. So, four characteristics of right worship. Number one, if we are going to worship God rightly, we must worship Him with our faith. God wants to be worshipped in faith. The prophet Malachi begins in verse 2 with a prophecy from the Lord. And God says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So God begins by telling people, kind of how we began our, our service this morning, I love you and out of all the audacity, the people of Israel respond, prove it, God. How have you loved us? The, the, the temple has been rebuilt, but it's nothing like Solomon's was. We're no longer under Babylonian captivity, but the Persians are still in control over us. We are a fragment of the glory that we once were. How have you loved us? We say the same thing sometimes, if we're honest. When our candidate loses an election, when we lose a job, when a family member suffers a chronic disability, when our cancer returns, when we bury a child. How have you loved me, Lord? I want you to notice that God will not leave his people doubting his love for them. And so he continues the second half of verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now what in the world is God talking about, and how is this supposed to comfort his people? You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, the two sons of Isaac, twin boys in Rebekah's womb, and God says to comfort his people that are doubting his love, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. What in the world is God talking about? I want you to remember a couple of things about God's love and God's hate. For us, both hate and love are often very emotional. When you say you love someone, there's often these butterflies and feelings that are all wrapped up in that. And when you say you hate someone, it's like, oh, I, I can't stand that person, right? It's often wrapped up in emotion. God is not like that. Uh, not that he doesn't have emotion, but his, his hate and love is much deeper, bigger, broader than that. It's much more than mere emotion, like it often is for us. And secondly, when we think about God's hatred, God's love, you need to understand that, that those are mutually exclusive for us. You don't hate and love the same person at the same time. And yet, in some way, God is able to do both. He is able to love the entire world in one sense. Mike read us John 3.16 earlier. For God so loved what? The world. And yet... The Bible is very clear that in this, another sense, God does hate the wicked. If you don't believe me, jot down Psalm 5 verse 5 where it says God hates evildoers. Or Psalm 11 verse 5 that God, says God hates the wicked. 
So God is able to kind of balance in some way both hatred and love at the same time towards the same people. So again, what in the world is Malachi talking about and why is it supposed to be comforting? I think Paul helps us greatly when he quotes this very passage in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 beginning in verse 11. Paul says, though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, that's Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, he's quoting Malachi, Jacob I, I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's what Paul's saying. Malachi is teaching the doctrine of election. That God in eternity past chose to set his covenant love on some people but not on others. If you read Romans chapter 9, Paul is very clearly using Malachi 1 to tell us that God chooses to set covenant love on some and not others. If you're listening, your immediate response might be, that's not fair. And you're right. It's not fair that God chose anybody. It's not fair. The gospel is not about fairness. Do you know what we get if we get fair, dear brother, sister, friend? We get the catechism question we recited earlier. Hell for all of us. The gospel is not about fairness. It is about grace. It is about a God that chooses to set his heart and affections on his people and love them. Charles Spurgeon rightly said that whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. You might not like it. It might cause a lot of questions, a lot of fears, a lot of doubts. But dear friend, it is given to us clearly in Scripture. What will we do with it? I would suggest to you that the doctrine of election is supposed to fill you with assurance. John Flavel said that if God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. I want you to listen to this for a second, dear friend. If God saves on the basis of you, your works, your behavior, your church attendance, your giving, your faith, what about when all of that is weak? Where will your assurance be? You won't have it. Because God chose me for me. But what if God chooses you not because you're great, but because he is? I remember when I was a kid, whenever we gathered around after church on Sunday mornings or at a church picnic or something like that to play kickball in the church baseball field, I was always the last one picked. And I knew it. Just the other day, we were playing a trivia game in our fellowship group, and I was the first one picked for trivia, but the last one picked for kickball. There's a pattern somewhere in there. But... When you're picked because you're good, then all of a sudden your confidence is in what? It's in you, your abilities, what you can offer. But if God chooses before anything is done, good or bad, as he did with Jacob over Esau, then your confidence is not in you, but in him. It's in him. Some would look at the doctrine of election and they would say, this is why Christians often treat unbelieving people so poorly. I would suggest to you, if you get that from this doctrine, you've not understood it. If you really understand the doctrine of election, you should treat everybody with dignity and kindness and respect. Why? Because it is nothing in us that makes us worthy or dignified or valuable. It is all in God, and he has stamped his image on every single one of us. Now, here's the takeaway when it comes to our worship in Malachi. God is not pleased by suspicious worship. Do you see that in the people of Israel? God says, I love you, and they say, prove it. 
They're suspecting, they're suspicious of his love. They, they're doubting him. And Hebrews eleven six tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here's the question for you this morning, brother, sister. Are you, are you worshiping God with faith? Are you suspicious of his love for you? I'm not asking you if you struggle sometimes. That's a different question. There's a difference between struggling with his love and being suspicious of it. But God is not pleased with suspicious worship, with worship that says, prove yourself to me and then I will praise you. Do this for me and I'll do that for you. Bless me and I'll bless you, Lord. That does not please him. He says, worship me because you belong to me, because I chose you, because before you did anything good or bad, you were the object of my affection and love. So God cares deeply about how we worship him, and he's not pleased if we don't approach him with genuine faith. Second characteristic of true worship, worshiping God the right way in the book of Malachi is that we are called to worship God with our best. Worship God with your best. This is the passage that was read earlier. Look at Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. So here's what he's saying. If a father deserves honor from his son, if a master deserved honor from a slave, how much more does God deserve honor from his people? He does. He's the one that chose them, that set his affection on Israel, on his covenant people. And he says, if I am your God, then don't I deserve your honor? God's people aren't honoring him in Malachi's day. They think they are. But honoring him is more than saying, I honor you, Lord. Honoring the Lord is showing it with your life by what you give him. Notice what the text says again in chapter 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? God, we've honored you. What are you talking about? We sing better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. What are you talking about, Lord? And he says in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is not that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God is saying, you're bringing animals to sacrifice in my temple that you would not give to your governor. Of course, you wouldn't bring him the blind, lame, crippled animal. And yet you're bringing these to sacrifice. Maybe, maybe you're listening to all this and you're wondering, why is this such a big deal? If you read the book of Leviticus... I know that that's first on your to-do list this afternoon. But for some of you, maybe it should be. If you read the book of Leviticus, it's clear that God desires a pure and unblemished sacrifice. Don't give God your scraps. He wants a sacrifice that's pure. Now we know part of the reason for that is because God intends the sacrificial system to point to another perfect sacrifice, Christ himself. But God also doesn't want scraps from his people. He doesn't want you to give him your leftovers. Now, some might be listening and you might be thinking, well, what if, what if these people in Malachi's day were poor? What if they didn't have the money for a nice lamb, a nice sacrifice? What if they were giving God the best that they have? We know from Malachi 1.14 that's not the case. The Levitical law did offer uh, uh, lesser sacrifices that you could give. In fact, if you read in the stories of the Gospels, Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, often gave the, the poor man sacrifice. That was a, it was allowed in the law, but these people had a nice lamb, unblemished, and yet they gave God the one that was crippled. Well, that one's not any good anyways. Give it to God. He won't care. 
Here's the principle for us, church. God is not pleased when we worship him with less than our best. Now, we know, we know that the whole sacrificial system is pointing to Christ. We do not offer sacrifices of animals, of blood in our worship services. We don't do that. So how do we apply this to our life today? Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, you, he's writing to the church, he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we gather as God's people, the church, we offer to God sacrifices, not of flesh and blood, but spiritual sacrifices through our praise, through our prayer, through our preaching, through our reading of God's word, through our body life together as a church. So here's the question, brother, sister, especially Pocosin Baptist Church member. Are you worshiping God with your best at Pocosin Baptist Church? Let me offer you some questions to ask yourself to assess and examine your own heart. Do you offer your best before you arrive? Do you plan ahead on Saturday night so Sunday mornings aren't so hectic? I often tell people Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. If you wake up and try to decide, am I going to church today or not, I guarantee you, you'll find a reason to stay home. Do you pray in advance, asking God to speak to you? Do you read the scripture for the sermon in advance, if you're able? Do you pray for those who will minister to you from the stage, whether through prayer, through reading, through singing? I don't say this to put us on a pedestal, but that's something our family, years, years and years ago, we decided to do that every time we got in the car to drive to church. We had one too many fights in the car on the way to church on a Sunday morning, and we said, you know what, we'll put an end to all of this if we just pray the whole time. And that's what we do. Every now and then we fight about who's praying for what, but that's another story. Here's the question. Do you offer your best before you arrive? Do you offer your best as you arrive? Do you consistently show up late? Not because something unforeseen has happened, but because you're ill-prepared or because you don't want to be on time. Do you simply rush to your seats without interacting with other people? Or do you come looking for opportunities to do what Hebrews says and stir up one another for love and good works? That's what we do when we gather. Do you offer your best when we pray? Is that... One of the convenient times for you to get a little nap in the service, depending on who's praying. Are you focused, intentionally praying alongside the person leading us? Are you saying amen, voicing your agreement with what was just prayed? Do you offer your best when scripture is read? Do you, do you follow along in your Bible if you're able? Do you bring your Bible so you can follow along? Do you offer your best when we sing? Do you moan and complain in your heart, not this song again? Do you criticize? Do you only sing out when you like the song? Do you offer your best when God's word is preached? Do you listen carefully throughout the sermon? If it helps, as you listen, do you, do you look for particular truths to discuss with your family or with your fellowship group? Do, do, do you look for ways to apply God's word to your life as you hear it? Or are you constantly applying it to the person near you? I hope so-and-so is listening to that. They needed to hear that point. What if God was talking to you, brother, sister? Do you offer your best as God's word is preached? Do you offer your best when you serve? If you're a Sunday school teacher or a nursery worker or a musician or a greeter or, a, or the preacher or on the safety team or on the prayer team, do you offer your scraps, whatever energy you have left, that's what I'll give? Or do you offer your best in your service? Do you serve at all, dear brother, sister? Do you offer your best as you leave? Are you out the door as quick as you can be? Or are you looking for ways to respond to God's word and love his people? Dear brother, sister, friend, you do not honor God when you give him your scraps.
Now, I, I want to be really, really careful here because we just went through a lot and it's really, really easy to turn a bunch of that into legalism. Okay, here's what I want you to take away from all of that. Are you offering your best? Not somebody else's best. There might be someone in here that's able to do things that you can't. You got four little kids running around so you can't get here on time. And you got to get out of here as quick as you can because they're driving you crazy. I've been there. That's okay. I'm asking you, are you offering your best? You might be in chronic pain right now. And just to be in that seat is offering more than you can barely handle to offer. Are you offering your best? What, what could you offer that you're holding back, brother, sister? That's the question. I would plead with you to think through one or two or three things that you say, I'm not offering my best here. God, forgive me and help me. God cares deeply about how we worship him, and he's not pleased if we don't give him our best. Number three, worship God with your life. Worship God with your life. If you were with us about a month or so ago when we studied the book of Amos, you might remember from Amos chapter 5 that God hates hypocritical worship. He, he literally says, I hate your songs. I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your festivals. Not because they picked bad songs, but because they were singing songs that did not match up with their lives. God is not pleased with you giving him lip service, with you singing a day in your courts is better than 10,000 elsewhere, but you live the rest of the week like you don't give a rip about his presence. He is not pleased by that. And brother, sister, friend, he sees right through it. He sees right through it. He's not pleased. Malachi accuses God's people of two hypocrisies. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, God begins to call out the hypocritical worship of his people. The text says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Here's the first hypocrisy. God commands his people to be pure, and yet they're intermarrying with other peoples. Now, I need to understand something very, very clearly here. God's, God's concern here is not about his people being racially pure, but religiously pure. This is not some sort of blood and soil, keep the perfect bloodline sort of theology here. The issue is not that they're just marrying foreigners. In fact, if you read in Jesus' own genealogy, it is littered with foreigners. It's not the point. It's, it's, it's religious purity. God wants his people to marry those who share the same faith and worship the same God. They've married the daughter of a foreign God. And God says, if you're going to clearly disobey what I've told you not to do, then don't sing your praises to me because I don't care about your hypocritical worship. And by the way, this same principle still applies for us as Christians in the church today. So if you want to jot down your Bibles or in your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Let me just say a word to the young people or older people, those that are of dating persuasion in this room. Don't even enter into a romantic relationship with someone that does not share your faith. Don't do it. Don't do flirt to convert. By the way, most of the time that's tried, what happens is the professing believer actually deconverts. That's what I've seen over and over again. 
Young people, please listen to me. Young people in this room, singles in this room, please listen to me. Do not pursue a relationship with somebody that doesn't worship the God that you worship. Don't do it. Don't do it. What about for those of you in this room who already find yourself married to an unbeliever? If that's you in this room, if you did so in sin, you knew what God told you to do and you disobeyed and did what you wanted to do anyways, confess it, trust that he forgives, believe that you're forgiven, and be a faithful husband or wife to your spouse. Be faithful. Which leads us to the second accusation of their hypocrisy in Malachi. That is that God's people were faithless in their marriages. Look at chapter 2, verse 14, the middle of the verse. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Notice what he's saying. They're, they're faithless in their marriages even though they are in a covenant relationship. Listen to me. Married people in the room, listen to me. If you sing his praises on Sunday but mistreat your husband or wife Monday to Saturday, your worship does not please God. It doesn't matter how much you give, how well you sing, it does not please him. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one? This is from Genesis chapter 1, where the two become one flesh with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Here Malachi just hints at the fact that, that marriage is unique from all other relationships. It is the only human relationship that can naturally produce offspring. Which is why the Christians have held for thousands of years that marriage, God's design for marriage, is between one man and one woman. But God's people have been tampering with God's design long before the sexual revolution. Look at verse 15, the middle half of the verse. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. If you're following along in your Bible and you have a different translation than the one that I'm preaching from, it might look drastically different from what I just read to you in verse 16. Uh, some translations uh, translate it as God hates divorce. Whereas in the ESV, it says the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. Those are radically different translations. The problem comes from just a really obscure Hebrew text. If you look at the original Hebrew, it, it says, if hates, sins away. And it doesn't say who's doing the hating, who's doing the sinning away. But, but no translation ever translated this as God hates divorce until the King James Version in 1611. The, the stream of church history has consistently translated this as talking about a person who is divorcing his wife, sending her away because he doesn't love her anymore. That's the sin that Malachi is preaching against, that God hates. He's saying, listen to me. If you want to be faithful in your marriage, even if the emotions, the romance, the feelings of love have diminished from what they once were, that does not give you the freedom to send away your wife. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, it is no longer the love that sustains your marriage, but your marriage that sustains your love. So if you're in this room and you're a husband or a wife, are you loving your spouse? Are you fighting for a faithful marriage? This is not to say, by the way, that God doesn't hate sinful divorce. God hates all sin. But the Bible also is clear, I believe, that there are several occasions when divorce is permissible. Places like 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives an exception for adultery. Also, also Matthew chapter 19. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 for abandonment. And then I would argue also when Paul talks about such cases like this, that he also could open the door for things like chronic abuse of a spouse could be a justifiable reason for divorce as a form of abandonment. But zooming out, brother, sister, the point here in Malachi 2 is that we would live faithfully, honorably, and fulfill our vows faithfully to one another as husband and wife. Now, I want you to understand something with me. God by highlighting these two issues, marrying someone that's not a believer and not being faithful in your marriage vows, by highlighting these two issues, God is saying there is no part of your life that does not belong to me. There is no more intimate relationship, brother, sister, friend, than who you go to bed with at night. And God says, I have authority there too. As Soren, or Abraham Kuyper would say, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If God cares about your marriage, he cares about everything in your life. And he is not pleased when you worship him hypocritically, when you have secret corners that you will not yield to him. even the places that nobody else can see. In the Second World War, the Allied forces created a, a dummy army. They wanted to show that they were stronger than they actually were. And so they hired a team of artists and designers to create a, a fake army, one that would look from the air just real enough for spies snooping around to be deceived and think that the allies were stronger than they actually were. So they built planes that were uh, more, no more than wooden shells and tanks that were made of inflatable rubber. They wanted to look stronger than they actually were. I wonder if there's any in this room that wants to look holier than you actually are. God is not pleased by pretend holiness. He sees you, brother, sister, friend, and he wants your life. He wants you to worship him with your life. Number four, fourth characteristic, worship God with your money. You knew this was coming. I warned you, and you stayed. Worship God with your money. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Isn't it great we're ending on a bang here, folks? All this stuff in one sermon. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is, if you want to put the story of the Old Testament in a sentence, there it is. God's people run away and God says, return to me. Return, return, return. This has been over and over and over again in the minor prophets. God pleading with his people, come back. Okay, so how do they start? Where do they start? What, what does it look like to turn around and return to God? He's so kind. He shows us not only to go back to him, but what it looks like to do it. How do we do it? Verse 7, but you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. All right, so that word tithe there in, the, uh, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it literally means tenth. A tenth of something, 10% of something. Malachi says tithes, not just tithe, because we know from the Old Testament that there were three different tithes that God's people were supposed to give. 
There was a tithe that went to support the Levites. There was a tithe that was kind of set aside for the annual feast that they would have. And then there was a poor tithe that was a, a tenth given every three years. So altogether, about 23% of their income was given to support these different tithes. And when Malachi talks about contributions, he's referring to various free will offerings that people would give above and beyond that 23%. God's people were neglecting either some or all of these, and God says, you are robbing me. Isn't it interesting, by the way, when God's people, asks, when God's people ask him, how do we return to you, Lord, that he starts by telling you to get out your wallet? Isn't that interesting? If you're a history buff in the room, you probably know the story of Sam Houston, the legendary general, war hero, politician, and the namesake of Texas's largest city. You may not know that towards the end of his life, Houston came to faith in Christ. And he was so serious about his walk with Jesus that he committed to pay at least half of the minister's salary every single year by himself. And someone asked him, Houston, why are you doing all that? And he said, because when I got baptized, my wallet got baptized too. How about you? Did your wallet get baptized too? Perhaps you're wondering, well, do I have to give a tithe? Am I supposed to give 10% of my income? This is a debated issue among Christians even today. We know at least one of the tithes is no longer in effect since it was related to the annual Jewish festivals. The tithe for the poor, which required 10% every three years, uh, is not in effect because we're not giving it to uh, the Jewish government to administer that. But I would, I would encourage you to listen to what Jesus says about caring for the poor. It's more than 3% every year. Listen to what he says in Luke 12. Sell your what? Possessions and give to the needy. Jesus asks even more of us than what the Old Testament would have asked. They were just called to give of some of their income. Jesus says, sell of what, some of what you have to meet the needs of the poor. The special tithe to care for the Levite seems to be echoed in the New Testament command to support the work of the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way? So Paul is drawing an analogy between the caring for the Levites by the tithe and the Old Testament and caring for the church and the new. The Lord commanded, he says, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So bottom line, Christians in the room, followers of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you. Followers of Jesus, I would encourage you to at least give a tithe to support the work of the church. It seems to be the implication of passages like what I just read to you in 2 Corinthians. Now, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus and you're not giving anything, then I would say start where you can. But I would, I would encourage you, why would Christ require less of you than what God required of his people in the Old Testament? This is the same Jesus who says, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. I need to say this because there might be a lot of confusion when you hear the pastor talking about tithe. You, tithing, you might think that the pastor is just trying to get a bigger paycheck. In fact, years ago, we were talking to our kids and trying to teach them these principles. And one of our kids um, started crying and saying, but daddy, then you're just going to get more of my money. That's not how it works, in fact. If we have a fantastic Sunday, uh, my paycheck is the same. You as the church set a budget every year, and that's how I'm paid. So I'm not asking you that because I, I'm really struggling right now or because the church is really struggling right now. In fact, I would say to you, God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver is his. The gold is his. The church doesn't need your money. PBC has continued faithfully, even through a pandemic. We've survived by God's grace. PBC is going to be fine. God's going to take care of me. But you need to learn how to be a faithful giver. 
And so I would challenge you, dear Christian, to at least view the tithe as like the training wheels for Christian giving. And I would encourage you even to go above and beyond and year after year ask uh, as you look at your finances and look at your budget, how could God leave us to, or lead us to give even more this year than we did the year before? And by the way, as a church, when we receive your giving, much of what you give, over 20% of your giving here is invested beyond the walls of PBC and local outreach and national global missionaries and residency programs, training up pastors to go out and all these things and more. Notice what God says to his people in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Sounds a lot like what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Dear Christian, Jesus wants all that you have because he wants all of you. Worship him with your money. Now, as the Old Testament comes to an end for us this morning, I want you to look with me at chapter 4, verse 4. As Malachi is summarizing this argument against God's people, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Jewish tradition says there were 613 different laws to obey. And yet the story of the Old Testament is a story of repeated failure. In the wilderness, God's people failed to obey his law. In the days of Joshua, when the judges ruled, when David and Solomon were king and the kingdom was united, when the kingdom was divided during the exile, now that they've returned over and over again, the story of the Old Testament is a story of God's people repeatedly failing him. So is there any hope for people like that? Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Notice that Elijah the prophet is not the one who fixes God's people. He comes before the awesome day of the Lord. Malachi talks about him in chapter 3, verse 1 as well, where he writes, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So God himself is going to come to his people, but before that, Elijah the prophet will come. And maybe this is new to you. Maybe you're hearing this and you're saying, What in the world? I didn't know that Elijah was coming. Well, the truth is, Elijah has already come. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 11 that it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. Verse 10, he, he is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for God himself. But John was not the point. Jesus is. He is the one who comes. If you go back with me to chapter 3 in Malachi, after saying that this messenger will come, in verse 1, the text says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Brother, sister, friend, our hope is not in being obedient enough 
who can stand before the day of the Lord. He is like fire. He is like soap. Our hope is not in worshiping him perfectly, but in trusting the one who cleanses us through his sacrifice in our place. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this one that came to scrub his people clean, to make their sacrifices acceptable in the eyes of the Father? If you don't know him, we'd invite you to head to the white flag as the service concludes, and we'd love to pray with you and talk with you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if you do know him, then we would plead with you now because you know him, not to earn his love, but because you have it. Now worship him like this because of how worthy he is. Another story is told of a young pianist making his concert debut at Carnegie Hall. His playing was magnificent. And after he left the stage, the audience erupted in applause and a standing ovation. As he looked behind the curtain at the crowd, the stage manager urged this young musician to go out for an encore, but the young man refused. The stage manager said, look out there, don't you see? Look at all the people standing and cheering for you. They love you. Give them an encore. And the pianist said, do you, do you see that old man sitting down in the balcony on the left? I will not give an encore until he stands and cheers. The stage manager was flabbergasted. Just one old man is seated and you won't take an encore? And the musician replied, you don't understand. That's not just any old man. That's my piano teacher. And the crowd's praise means nothing if my master isn't pleased. Dear church, the world's praise means nothing to us if our master isn't pleased. So let's please him with how we worship him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that Christ lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death according to the scriptures, that he rose from dead, that he purifies us when we come to him in faith and repentance. And that you take even our flawed worship and you turn it into a pleasing aroma. And yet, Lord, you call us to worship you truly. To worship you with our faith. To worship you with our lives. To worship you with our money. To worship you with our best. And yet, so often, we are guilty just like God's people in the days of, of Malachi of giving you our scraps. Forgive us, we pray. And help us to live and worship you in such a way that the world sees how great you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.